Friends, as we gather back together for the beginning of this fall, I thought I'd share a little story about a recent experience that made me thankful for this teaching from Matthew 18. Just the other night, a handful of us relaunched the Justice and Mercy Committee of RCHP. A small group of church people who care about justice and mercy matters had a very rich discussion, which included unpacking why the committee had sort of fizzled out a couple of years ago. And there were very reasonable explanations that I assumed had led us to hit the pause button. Reasons such as there are so many major justice and mercy things going on around and in and through RCHP and so many members involved in refugee resettlement and anti-trafficking and re-entry and cancer care and affordable housing, you name it, that it left a catch-all justice and mercy committee sort of unclear of its identity, right? But I had also sensed that there might be something more that made the committee sputter a bit. I just genuinely didn't know what it was. And it turned out that part of what made the committee sputter was me. I'd been asked by a previous chair to give a quick report of five to ten minutes each month on what the other organizations were doing around the church, just so the Justice and Mercy Committee could kind of stay informed of some things happening that grew out of the church. And that was a fair request. But without knowing it, as I rapidly reported all these outcomes every month, how many grants, how many refugees resettled, how many houses built and rented, blah, 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 and I tried to go fast so as not to dominate the time of the meeting, some of it was falling on offended ears. How does Seth have the audacity to simply present all this as a list of completed things and not acknowledge the complexities of some of the topics he just blasted through? There are race matters and gender matters and environmental matters and economic matters and power dynamic matters that surround every single one of these things that he just boom, boom, boom listed. Is there room for discussion? Here he goes, just blasting out a list of what's done, not engaging us in any part of the process. So friends, I'm bringing this up because it was an instance where I missed my fault, my responsibility, my sin in a situation entirely. And I was so thankful this past week when we paused and a couple people felt it was a safe place to, to point out what had been disappointing and even hurtful about the last iteration of the committee's monthly agenda. We paused, and there was honest sharing, and I was able to have ears to hear something that I needed to hear about myself. It will make the committee stronger, our relationships better, and my leadership as a pastor more aware. So I point to my own shortcoming, my own failure, my own sin today, because I think it might be a helpful way for all of us to look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. But first, Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is found in the middle of what is called Matthew's fourth discourse. And let me say a word about that. One unique feature of Matthew is that he has five lengthy discourses that include some teachings that are found in other Gospels, some stories found in other Gospels, but that have a lot of new material as well and that are completely uniquely organized by Matthew. The first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, like chapters 5, 6, 7 is discourse 1. So you can see some of these are pretty lengthy. This one happens to be just one chapter long. Some think that maybe the five discourses were a way for Matthew to suggest that Jesus is the new Moses. And these discourses are akin to the five books of a new and expanded Torah. 
The first discourse, as I said, is the Sermon on the Mount. So you can see where this interpretation comes from. Moses on the mountain in ancient times receiving the Torah from God. Jesus on the mountain, Moses-like, but more, sharing God's word with all the people. This fourth discourse is all about behavior within the kingdom of heaven. And it starts in response to the disciples asking, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Church, remember here that the disciples are not asking Jesus, who is going to be greatest after all the earthly stuff is over and we're living with you eternally in the sky somewhere? That is not the kingdom that the disciples were interested in. The word heaven is what makes this confusing sometimes. Matthew, as a dedicated Jew, writes primarily to Jews and is not writing the word God, for the divine name was too sacred to be written. And instead, he substitutes the term heaven, where Mark and Luke write God. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. The kingdom that the disciples want to know about in all the Gospels is that kingdom that is starting now, right here on this earth. What they wanted to know was, what does greatness look like in this community that is being made new by Christ? What does greatness look like in this very community that seeks to follow you? Words like little ones and sheep and members of the church are all used in chapter 18. And these are all words that are used in the Gospels in general to describe people who are part of this new kingdom community. And so we can see chapter 18, the fourth discourse, is a passage full of instructions regarding greatness for those who claim Jesus and desire to live in Jesus' new kingdom. And so I ask you today, RCHP, to ponder this question with the disciples and to listen to Jesus' answers. And I'll quickly share the answers that Jesus gave in the first 15 verses and then pause to more fully discuss today's um, advice from Jesus. Jesus' first answer about greatness in the new kingdom is that greatness is about humility. If you want to be great, become humble like these little children. Verse 1 through 5. Second, he says greatness is about removing stumbling blocks for people so that all feel welcomed and included. And Jesus gets very firm about how important it is to remove stumbling blocks using the superlative statement, it's better for you to have a millstone fastened around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea than to create stumbling blocks for newbies in my community. Thirdly, he says, if you want to be great, if someone goes astray from the new kingdom, love them to the point of seeking them out continually. Don't let any sheep be lost from the fold. Luke uses this text in a different setting, but here in Matthew, it's right here in this greatness thing. Even if you've got 99 others, don't ever stop pursuing this one. And finally, we reach today's passage, verses 15 through 20. If you want to be great in the new kingdom, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault. That's it. If you've been hurt in the community of faith, Find a quiet and calm way to try to address the offender. And hopefully, addressing the offender works. Keep it simple and clear. That's greatness. Right? Most of the time when we read this passage, I think the tendency is to read ourselves into the teaching as the person who was wronged. Right? If you are wronged, here are the instructions for what to do in addressing your offender. But this week, as I read this passage, 
I hoped the disciples too, as they heard it, recognized that sometimes they would be the offender, as I was in the story that I shared about the justice and mercy meeting situation, right? Disciples won't only exclusively be the victim. Until heaven and earth are one, we will all make mistakes. We will all hurt each other. We will say things, have gaps in our understanding of power dynamics, have biases that we need to work through. Sometimes we'll lose our way. We'll forget. We'll get sidetracked with the wrong thing. It will happen, guaranteed. Despite each of us being beautiful, we are all fallen too. So when it does happen to us, and we are the offender are we ready to hear from the offended? Are we ready to receive a sibling in Christ who comes to us and says, hey, you hurt me, and here is how, and here is why, right? Are we ready to have the humility to really listen and to calmly take in what is being said? Are we ready to be great in that way too? Right? It's not easy to confront someone who has hurt you or disappointed you. It's not always easy even to articulate what the offense has been. Wouldn't it be great to know that the offender, as a sibling in Christ, is also aware of Jesus' process of reconciliation in these situations? Wouldn't it be great for the offended person, the victim, to know that the person who caused the offense is bent toward humility and ready to listen and will likely acknowledge a hurt caused? Wouldn't it be great if the offender is great like this. And there will, of course, be times when some wrong is not acknowledged by the offender and the situation escalates. Jesus outlines a process of what to do if directly addressing someone who offended you is unsuccessful. He says if directly addressing an, offend, an offense doesn't work, get someone else to witness how you're handling the matter and how the offender is receiving it. It doesn't say get someone in your corner. It says, get a witness there to kind of pay attention to this whole process. Basically, get a trusted friend in the church who's presumably important to both victim and offender to sit in and to observe. And there's a step after that, too. If nothing works and if an offense is drastic and unresolved, tell it to the church. Jesus acknowledges that sometimes things escalate to a point that needs a full community response. But that's not what I think is most helpful in this passage for us this week. What I think is helpful is for us to become a people, a church people, who recognize that sometimes we are the offended, and sometimes we are the offender, and that in a community of humility, calm, and spiritual presence, we can work through most things through Christ who teaches us a simple way to reconciliation. As we gather back together, relaunching our programs and classes this fall, Jesus' answer about how to work through offenses is a great gift to us. And can I say, this advice is really needed not only in our church community, but in a society that seems too often to choose a very different way of addressing interpersonal conflict. Canceling, right? I'm going to cancel her. I'm done, right? There's a tendency... And it's even got some substantial social media energy and other energy, I believe, to cancel people, right? To decide that an offense means the end of a relationship. And I find it super troubling. The pace at which people decide that the work of very possible reconciliation is just too much. 
In order to protect myself, I'll just cancel that other person. Right? There are, of course, times when reconciliation shouldn't be sought without careful regulatory support. There are forms of violence, violation, etc., that necessitate cancellation and court orders. But that is not what I'm talking about. And it's not the kind of sin that I think Jesus was talking about either in Matthew 18. I'm talking about the tendency as the offended, as the victim, to just cancel an offender as if the offender isn't aware that they have caused it, even if the offender isn't aware that they've caused an offense. And I'm also talking about the tendency of offenders to have little sympathy for the ways that one's actions have caused harm and to not take the other person's hurt seriously. If you're going to be so oversensitive, I'm just going to cancel you. I honestly think that some of the loneliness and some of the mental health challenges of this generation have been exacerbated by the quick choice of cancellation rather than reconciliation. It's dangerous, isolating behavior for both victims and offenders. I'm hopeful, friends of God, that as we model reconciliation within our church community, in the way we handle the occasions when we are offenders and when we are the offended, that we can demonstrate for the world that the work of interpersonal reconciliation is indeed a form of greatness that is part and parcel to the life of the kingdom of God. Speaking of power, while the instructions Jesus gives to the offended and to the offender are very practical and personal, Jesus reminds us that the power of this process is spiritual in nature. We are not alone in these situations. This isn't just good advice. It's good advice with spiritual presence, right? Whenever we are engaged in this work, this work of reconciliation, where two, are, where two are gathered, the offender and the offended, or three are gathered, the offender, the offended, and the witness, Jesus is among them, right? We say that phrase a lot, where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus is with us, but usually we say it when we're together sharing prayer requests and in a kumbaya kind of moment. It's true in those contexts, don't get me wrong, but that's not where this verse comes up in Scripture. There are a lot of places where we can experience the presence of God in Christ, in sunsets, in perfect moments with family and friends, in times of solitude and retreat, but we can also experience God in Christ in the work of reconciliation as described here in Matthew 18. So I'm not asking you to go look for trouble, but when you find yourself in it, as either the offender or the offended, remember that very likely one benefit of the work ahead of you is that you're about to experience the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who came to earth to reconcile us to God and to each other and who promises to be with us always in this work even until the end of the age. Thanks be to God.